Thank you, Anne. It's getting into that last month now. We do the last, the last morning communion, the last church meeting held in this room where we've held lots and lots of church meetings. But in these endings are also new beginnings. So it is a bit poignant. And if you, know, if you feel a bit emotional, that's absolutely fine. Um, I feel strangely emotional now I'm saying it. Um, but we are here to worship God, and I hope that um, in the course of this morning, as we worship, as we make decisions, as we share in remembering around the table, we will all find some measure of blessing. For our call to worship, we're going to do something slightly different this morning. We're going to read the first chapter of Genesis together. Uh, it will appear on the screen, so I'm conscious that people on the extreme peripheries might struggle to see it. But if you can't see it, I'm sure you'll be able to uh, join in with the refrain of each bit, which will be said together, which will be, and there was evening, and there was morning, the whatever day we've got to in the count. And we're going to read it in three groups. So if this side could be group one, because there's lots of you, so that will give us a good solid start. This central section, group two, and this section, group three. So I'm conscious that group three might struggle to see it. Um, I will read through all the way, and we all join in in words that are, will appear on the screen in italic and in white, which are the refrain and a bit of words at the end. So, in the beginning, when God created the heavens and the earth, the earth was a formless void, and darkness covered the face of the deep while a wind from God swept over the face of the waters. Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And God said, Let there be a dome in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. So God made the dome and separated the waters that were under the dome from the waters that were above the dome. And it was so. God taught the dome sky. And there was evening, and there was morning, the second day. And God said, Let the waters under the sky be gathered into one place, and let dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let the earth pour forth vegetation, plants yielding seeds, and fruit trees of every kind on earth that bear fruit with the seed in it. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seeds of every kind, and trees of every kind bearing fruit with the seed in it. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the dome of the sky to separate the day from the night, 
and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the dome of the sky to give light upon the earth. And it was so. God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. God set them in the dome of the sky to give light upon the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, Let the waters bring forth swarms of living creatures, and let birds fly above the earth across the dome of the sky. So God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves of every kind with which the waters swam, and every winged bird of every kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and come multiply, and fill the waters in the seas, and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures of every kind, cattle and creeping things, and wild animals of the earth of every kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals of the earth of every kind, and the cattle of every kind, and everything upon the ground of every kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make humankind in our image, according to our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, and over all wild animals of the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created humankind in his image. In the image of God he created them. Male and female he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the air, and over everything that moves upon the earth. God said, See, I have given you a plant yielding seed that is upon the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every bird of the earth, and to every bird of the air, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all their multitudes. And on the seventh day, God finished the work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all the work that he had done. 
so God blessed the seventh day and hallowed it, because on it God rested from all the work that he had done in the creation. Thank you. And so we're going to sing a hymn of praise to that God. All creatures of our God and King, lift up your voice and with us sing. Alleluia. If you're able to and would like to, you're invited to stand as we sing.
And now let's come to God in prayer. And our gathering prayer this morning is taken from the book Gathering for Worship. Let's pray together and then after that join together in the Lord's Prayer in whichever form is most natural. Creator God, we praise and thank you for the earth and the wonder of its life, the beauty of landscape, sky and seasons, the variety of animals and plants with their intricate interdependence for making us to be part of it all, shaping landscape, affected by seasons, partners in creation. Redeemer God, we praise you for Jesus Christ and the glory of your work in him, his life in all its fullness of doing and being, his following through of your way to the end, and for your raising of him and all who follow him. Inspire a God, we praise and thank you for human history and the richness of our inheritance, the heights of human artistry and the depths of human understanding. Come to us by your spirit and perform your work of new creation. Generous and bountiful God, all good things come from you and now we give you thanks And we join together in the prayer Jesus taught his followers as we say together, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Just realised I forgot my visual aid, never mind. Uh, a couple of weeks back, I was at the Baptist Assembly up in Glenrothes, and the title of the Baptist Assembly this year was an intriguing one. It was Gazing on God's Glory. And I don't think we ever quite worked out what that meant. We did lots of talking about stuff we could do, but what does it mean to gaze on God's glory? Where do we see something that makes us go, wow, that makes me think of God? Anybody got any thoughts? Margaret? A rainbow, yep, wonderful. All the colours of the rainbow and God's promise to us in the rainbow. Carl? Charities, that's a really good one, isn't it? Because as we help other people, so we see something of God's generosity and kindness. Yep. Other thoughts? Sunset. Sunset, yep. Beautiful sunset. We catch a glimpse of God in that, don't we? Any more? Waterfalls? Sorry. The Northern Lights. So lots of natural things, and we think, wow, that makes us think about God. I actually saw something of God's glory yesterday. Yesterday morning, when 20-odd people came down here in their thick jumpers and their old clothes and filled bags with rubbish and took them to the tip and discovered treasures that we want to keep. Because the best way we see God's glory is in each other. If you remember that bit of scripture we read together, it said, God made human beings in the image and likeness of God. So when I look at Leo, 
I get a glimpse of God. And when I look at Jen or Mary or Fiona, I get a glimpse of God. And when Owen needs to go and escape because it's a bit noisy for him in here, a bit cold for him in here, that reminds us that God is much younger than any of us, even though God's much older than all of us. And I glimpse God in Addy and Moji and in visitors and in friends and people I've known a long time and people I've known just a short time. Because the best way that we see God is in each other. I was going to pass around a mirror so you, you could all say, look at your mirror and say, I'm made in the image and likeness of God and in my face there is something of God's glory. The mirror's still upstairs so that's not going to happen. But look around just for 10 seconds and see God's glory in every single face in this place. And that we, as a community of God's people, reflect something unique and precious of God's glory. And that's something really important to hold on to as we're going into a a very busy and quite challenging month ahead of us. That the glory of God is glimpsed in each of us and that together in our relationships and our support and encouragement of each other, we reflect something of God's glory. So we're going to sing now our psalm. I've gone out of order, haven't I, Paul? Yes, we'll do our psalm now and then we'll, then we'll sing the other psalm. Yeah, just do the psalm. No, do the psalm. We'll, we'll skip the other one. Sorry. I've lost the plot this morning.
Our reading is from Genesis 2, 4 to 9, and 18 to 23. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no plant of the field was yet in the earth, and no herb of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth, and there was no one to till the ground. But a stream would rise from the earth and water the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Out of the ground the Lord God made to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper as his partner. So out of the ground the Lord God formed every animal of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to the man to see what he would call them and whatever the man called each living creature that was its name the man gave names to all cattle and to the birds of the air and to every animal of the field but for the man there was not found a helper as his partner So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and he slept. Then he took one of his ribs and closed up its open place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This one shall be called woman, for out of man this was taken. And our second reading is from Revelation 21, verse 1 to 7. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, See, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them. They will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more for the first things have passed away. And the one who was sitting seated on the throne said, See, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this, for these words are trustworthy and true. Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water as a gift from the spring of the water of life. Those who conquer will inherit these things, and I will be their God, 
and they will be my children. Sorry about that, Margaret. So I dropped a hymn, and then poor Margaret was sitting there thinking, I'm sure there's a hymn coming, I'm sure there's a hymn coming. And it wasn't. Those who've been here the last few weeks who have heard my comments on the readings set by eco congregations perhaps won't be too surprised to discover that this week I decided to abandon the readings they set and pick some myself. The readings that we've heard act almost as the bookends of the Bible, and they are among the best known and best loved, as well as some of the most contested and diversely understood parts of the Christian scripture. And they seem to me to be relevant to the title of Caring for All Creation, which is what eco-congregations invite us to think about, and also for us as a congregation on the brink of a very significant decision. They're beautiful, poetic texts that speak about beginnings and endings, of time and eternity, of the local and the cosmic, all of which are held together within the mystery that is our triune God, creator, redeemer, and sustainer. As I was pondering these readings this week, I called to mind a verse from one of my favorite children's hymns when I was growing up. God has given us a book full of stories which was made for his people of old. It begins with a tale of a garden and ends with a city of gold. Well, actually, it doesn't quite begin with a tale of a garden, does it? It begins with a beautiful piece of poetry, part of an oral tradition and learned by heart, regularly repeated in homes and community gatherings, It's been suggested that what we have here in Genesis chapter 1, with which we began the service, could well be the earliest example of a formal recorded liturgy. That's why I chose for us to read it as we did, because you get the rhythms as it goes through. We get caught up in the rhythm and the repetition and a little more of the creation of which we are part perhaps impacts on us. And it starts a cosmic scale. God speaks. Whether that's a big bang or a still small voice doesn't matter. But as God speaks, the entire cosmos begins to emerge. And if the order of the liturgy doesn't quite fit with our present scientific understanding, and if it reflects a culture incredibly different from our own, it really doesn't matter. Because, like the ancients who either spoke or sang these words, we find ourselves caught up, or at least I do, in wonder and awe at the magnitude, majesty and mystery of creation. Over and over we repeat the words, and God saw that it was good. 
And that has to be our starting point in looking at creation. Something that fits better with Eastern Christianity and a concept of original grace than the Western one, which has focused rather a lot on original sin. And even if we don't believe in original sin, we emphasize sometimes sin over grace. The whole of creation is and always has been good. Not perfect, if by that we mean some kind of platonic ideal to which we aspire, the, image, you know, the idea that there's a real world that's perf- perfect and all we glimpse are shadows, shadow pictures on a wall. But as some theologians have expressed it, what we have is the best of all possible worlds, or perhaps more accurately, the best possible cosmos. Out of every possibility that could have emerged by evolution or whatever processes are involved, this is the best it was going to be. This is what we had. And God says it's good. All of creation, the fading stars at the very edge of the universe, which are where time began, and the smallest subatomic particle yet to be identified and named. The oil and gas under the sea and the naturally occurring occurring nuclear fission of uranium and fusion of helium in the sun and hydrogen in the sun. The bees and the beetles, the slugs and the snails, the song of the nightingale, the croak of the crow. You could go on forever and ever listing these things. You could sing forever. But what matters is not that we're just awed but that awe motivates us to to recognize our need to care for this creation that God has made and of which we are a part. It's beautiful. It's good. It's precious. God loves it, and so we should love it and cherish it. Those who are familiar with biblical scholarship will know that the scholars see at least four different sources in the Old Testament. I'm not quite remember what they all are off the top of my head, and I didn't write them down, but there's certainly a Yahwist, an Elohist, a Deuteronomist, and a something elseist, which I can't remember. These began as oral traditions. People told the stories and passed them on, and over time they came to be collected together in scrolls and now for us in books that have been translated into English and we can read them anytime we like. And we see this very clearly at the beginning of Genesis because we have the beautiful poetry of Genesis 1, which we read together, and then we have the equally beautiful but very different accounts that Margaret read for us from Genesis chapter 2. And if you try to read that with a scientific head on, it doesn't work. Because that doesn't match with that, and neither of them matches with what we think happened. The ancients, I think, were onto something that we've forgotten. It doesn't have to neatly tie up to convey truth, to have meaning. The poetry of Genesis 1 is very, very beautiful. But it can also be overwhelming. This cosmic scale of everything, stars and planets and and so many things you can't count, it can make you feel very tiny and very small. 
and very insignificant. That we're part of a tiny faith community in a tiny place, because Glasgow's pretty tiny when you measure it against the world, and the world is absolutely tiny, teeny, when you measure it against the solar system or the, the galaxy or the universe. So what we get in Genesis 2 is actually local and small scale and earthy and actually in some ways, at least to start with, a bit more comforting. Creation starts out dry and barren. The earth is hard and untilled. It hasn't rained yet and God starts the process of bringing it to life. And I love what God does, scooping up some earth and molding it into a man, a person, and breathing in life and saying, there we go, off we go. Creation begins. And God makes a garden. It's lush, it's green, it's got good soil, clear water, and I suspect it's pretty idyllic. And into this garden comes a solitary human who may enjoy it. I don't know how you imagine that garden, but perhaps you think it's the most beautiful formal garden you've ever visited. All the flowers are in full bloom and the scent is filling the air and it's wonderful. Or perhaps you imagine it as a harvest gar- a, a vegetable garden at harvest time and those onions and marrows and carrots would win every single prize in the horticultural show. Perhaps you see it as in spring or in winter. But however we imagine that garden, it's lovely. But it's also very lonely. One human can delight in the tastes and the colours and the smells, but there's no one to tell, no one to share. And so God brings in the animals for the person to name. And I suspect if you're anything like me, having grown up with picture Bibles, or you've been to farms and zoos and wildlife parks, you've got an idea in your head of what that looked like. So in came the cows and the sheep and the goats and the pigs and the gorillas and the turtles and the tigers and the eagles and the elephants. We probably forget about the earthworms and the earwigs and the toads and the snakes and the rats. Oh, and the midges. There is so much variety there in the animal life. And the animals do seem to appreciate a kind word or having their fur stroked. Some of them will perhaps even follow this lone human around. But it's not a cure for loneliness. I'm about as independent as it gets, and I love my cats to bits. But it's never quite enough, is it? And God recognises the loneliness. And for the first time we hear about something that God does not think is good. Isolation. And so God makes a second human being to complement the first one. A helpmate. Someone who can understand. Someone who can share in the wonder and delight of the garden. I love this image that puts humanity firmly into creation rather than over against it. It's a story that hints at the need for community, that humans need to share together in the work of caring for creation, 
because they are part of that creation. The tail end of Genesis 2 is all too often used within the church as a proof text for monogamous heterosexual marriage. But that's not actually where it fits. Where it fits is in this recognition that isolation isn't good for people. People need to exist in relationship if they're to grow and they're to flourish. If we recognize ourselves as being part of the creation, that the same God who creates, redeems and sustains us is the same God who creates, redeems and sustains all creation, that the God who, according to the Gospel of John, loved the entire cosmos so much that Christ was sent for its redemption, then, again, we're reminded to cherish it and care for it. All of it, even the midges. And if human relationships are part of God's creation, then we have to look after those too, don't we? Whether it's our families, whether it's our friendships, whether it's our life partners, whether it's our church communities. These are gifts to us from God, which are at least in part to relieve relieve us and release us from being isolated. So the way we live has potential to make a difference for good or ill to us here and by extension globally and yes, even cosmically. There's an awful lot of human created junk out in space, isn't there? So that's the Genesis stories. We're going to move to Revelation now. Over the years, I've met a lot of people who specialize in urban theology. And when they get to the end of Revelation, they get a little bit overexcited, it has to be said. Because instead of a rural idyll, we are taken to a city. A stunning city, resplendent with ornate and beautiful buildings. And perhaps for us, as we imagine that the best we can, It's like our tourist experience of the great capital cities of the world. Or the the cathedrals that we have visited, even in, in these islands. Something amazing and beautiful. We certainly don't imagine industrial wasteland or spoil heap or reclamation yards or slum housing. This city epitomizes everything to which we might aspire. It's opulent. It's spacious. There isn't any litter. There's nobody sitting on the pavement begging. Nobody is cold. Nobody goes hungry. There isn't a hospital in this city because nobody ever gets ill. And there isn't a cemetery because nobody ever dies. It is a city fully alive. And yet it is nothing like Glasgow or London or New York or any other city where people are rushing around to the next appointment in an endless, frenzied itinerary. It's a city with a river running through it, and it's a city where there are leafy trees in the streets. I like to think, actually, it's a bit like Glasgow at its best, but just a bit more so. 
In a book of the Bible that is bewildering and frightening and usually misunderstood, we are offered a glimpse of an eternal future promised by the same God who spoke creation into being and who entrusted the planet to the care of frail, failing, finite human beings like us. Some scholars think that the words in Revelation refer to a completely new heaven and earth, that this cosmos will wear out or be so badly damaged that God will choose to start over again. Others take a different view, suggesting that God will recreate the same heaven and the same earth, that all the damage and disorder and disappointment will be wiped away. But whatever their view, they still have the same telos, the same goal or end of their thinking. That one day, all that is evil or death dealing, all that brings harm, all that denies health or life will be gone. And God's original vision for creation will become reality. us as God's creatures and as God's co-workers that has to affect how we live in the here and now if our eschatological Wendy special word for you I know you like that one eschatological hope in Christ has to play out here in this faith community here in this city and more widely in this world what does that mean what does it mean for us to anticipate in the kind of general we're waiting for it sense and the um, more philosophical we are doing a bit of it now sense, if we hold that vision. In a few minutes, those of us who've covenanted together as members of this local church will be finalising an important decision. And as we do so, we will look back with gratitude to the women and men whose vision and commitment led to the founding of this congregation and erection of these premises. And as we do so, we don't actually need to be reminded, do we, that this building that we love so much as our home base isn't just tired, but actually it's pretty well worn out. It needs to be made new. It needs to be recreated as a place where we and others can continue to find acceptance and love, and the hope that God offers us in Christ. Here in this place, with people like us, the God of creation will continue that work, inspiring us and those who follow us to care for the relationships of which we are part, (laughs) to care about the aspects of the natural world and human creativity that we enjoy. And in all of that, to keep our eyes fixed on Christ, the source and goal of the faith that we profess. God looked at creation and God saw that it was good. And God blessed it and God set it free. And we who are set free choose to live our lives as best we can to bring about the kingdom of God 
for which we continue to pray. And so we're going to sing together, O Lord, all the world belongs to you, and you're always making all things new. What's wrong, you forgive. And the new life you give is what's turning this world upside down. now we come to God with our prayers for others and for each other. Let's pray. God of all creation, you have given us prayer as a means of opening our hearts, minds and voices to you. An opportunity to express thoughts and feelings, concerns and even requests. So in these moments, we do that. We recognise thoughts and feelings. We name situations and people. All too often, when we see newspaper headlines or listen to news reports, we are shocked and horrified by aggressive language. Thinly veiled xenophobia carelessly expressed sound bites, fueling hate, stoking fear, and undermining the very diversity 
that makes these islands what they are. So we pray for those whose work is to observe, interpret and report news. That their humanity would lead to thoughtful, compassionate and constructive use of language. At a time when reported news seems to consist almost entirely of angry exchanges between powerful women and men in the USA and the UK, we think of those who choose to devote their energy and expertise to the work of local, national and international government. People who control the movements of military forces, allocate budgets, create legal frameworks and are entrusted with making decisions of global significance. So we pray for would-be presidents and in-post prime ministers and first ministers that their humanity would prompt them to be thoughtful, compassionate and constructive in the use of the power and privilege entrusted to them. And in the midst of all that happens, nationally and internationally, our own lives bring their share of challenge and opportunity. We think for a moment of our own lives, lived out mostly in private and unobserved. And we pray for one another. We pray for those who are unwell or in pain, whether acute, curable diseases or long-term, incurable conditions. for those who are weighed down by anxiety or grief, for those who are tired, fatigued or weary, for those who are lonely or isolated, For those who are just rubbing along that life is on an even keel. And for those whose lives are fulfilling, energising and enjoyable. God, in whose image each one is made and whose image is expressed in community, May our shared humanity lead us to be gentle with ourselves and others, offering encouragement, support and love. These prayers we offer in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.
loving God who creates and recreates all things. As we bring these gifts of money on this day, which for us is very significant, we pray that you will give us the courage and compassion, the love and the energy we need to spend them wisely in your service. Amen. So we're going to move now into our church meeting. We're going to bring back um, those who are out of the room at the moment. Anne's going to come and join me. This is a day of new beginnings, a time to remember and move on, time to believe what love is bringing, laying to rest the pain that's gone. And if you're able to stand as we sing, that would be great. tell us of many meals, leisurely meals, hurried meals, important meals, ordinary meals, sumptuous meals, simple meals, meals with strangers and meals with friends. Abraham and Sarah at Mamre, Elijah and the widow of Zarephath. The Hebrew people on the eve of their departure from Egypt. A wedding in Cana. A hurriedly arranged meal at the home of Zacchaeus. A carefully prepared dinner at the home of a leprous Pharisee. A picnic on a hillside. A barbecue on a beach. So many meals, so many stories, so much meaning, so many memories. And now we come to share this meal, 
tokens of bread and wine, symbolizing faith and hope and love. An old wooden table that, frankly, has seen better days. A white cloth, carefully laundered, pressed and spread. Bread to be broken and wine already poured. Familiar, comfortable words spoken in this place since 1883 and that will be spoken in this place again in the years to come. We come not because it's our right to come. We come not because it's our duty to come. We come only because Christ invites us to come and we come gladly because surely it is a privilege to come we come just as we are welcomed accepted redeemed and cherished So let us hear again the old, old story and remember why it is that we are here. The Apostle writes, For I received from the Lord what I also handed on to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took a loaf of bread And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body that is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So let's pray together. Creator God, who brings forth grain from the earth, and fruit from the vine. We offer you our grateful thanks for this bread and this wine, the combined result of your generous provision and the best of human endeavour. May we who share remember why we do this. And in the sharing, may we also find refreshment for our ongoing journey of faith as we follow in the footsteps of Christ. Amen. It was Jesus' last supper with his friends. 
And this is our last morning communion in this place. I find that really a significant moment, that somehow, mysteriously, we are in that upper room at that last supper. We will continue to break bread, of course we will, and we will continue to journey onwards together. But this is a last as well as a first. And so Jesus took the bread and he broke it and he shared it with his friends. Friends, Jesus offers us this bread. Let us receive it with gratitude and with gladness. And then, at the end of the meal, Jesus took a cup of wine, probably the cup of blessing, the one that would send people off on their way, on their journey. And so for us, this is a cup of blessing for our continued journey together, following Jesus wherever he leads us. We do this not alone not in isolation. We do this in community and therefore it is right and fitting that we retain our glasses in order to drink together. Together, as the people of God, as the body of Christ in this place, we drink in gratitude, in faith, in hope, and above all, in love. Dying, you destroyed our death. Rising, you give us life. Glory be to you, O Christ our Saviour, Redeemer, and Friend. Amen.
to use a blessing which is going to appear on the screen, a shared one. Um, and this is spontaneous, so it may go horribly wrong, but I'm sure it won't. Paul, I wonder if we could sing the um, doxology at the end of that. Praise God, to whom, from whom all blessings flow. So some responsive blessing, and then we will sing the doxology together. On our heads and our houses, the blessing of God. In our coming and going, the peace of God. In our life and believing, the love of God. At our ending and new beginning, the arms of God to welcome us and bring us home. Praise God.